0: From the Aspen Institute, this is Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. This episode features William Derezewicz and David Brooks. Derezewicz is author of Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. He is a contributing writer for The Nation and The American Scholar. His essay, The Disadvantages of an Elite Education, has been viewed more than one million times online. Brooks is one of America's most prominent political commentators and is an op-ed columnist for The New York Times. He also writes frequently about culture and social sciences. Brooks is the best-selling author of four books, most recently, The Road to Character, At a time when traditional notions of college are under attack, from the shift to online instruction, to the emphasis on STEM fields over liberal arts, to the continued privatization of public higher ed, Derezowicz and Brooks agree it is urgent we ask what college is supposed to be about in the first place. This conversation was recorded during a lunch session at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Here are William Derezowicz and David Brooks.
1: Thanks, thanks very much for coming, and thanks to everyone at the uh, uh, Ideas Festival for making this possible, and to David Brooks for agreeing to be in conversation with me. Um, he's the perfect person. He was talking about some of the same issues I talk about before, as far as I know anyone else, most obviously in his famous essay, The Organization Kid. I, was, uh, I think the best way to talk about what, what I'm here to talk about is to talk about the book that I wrote last year called Excellent Sheep, and even more importantly, where it came from. I was a professor of English at Yale for 10 years, uh, ending in 2008. Before that, I had been a graduate instructor at Columbia for five years while I was getting my PhD. And at the end of my time in academia, it just turned out to be the end of my time in academia, in 2008, I published an essay called The Disadvantages of an Elite Education. If I had known that anyone was going to read it, I would have thought up a better title but uh, it at least has the virtue of being descriptive. And what I talked about were the problems I saw with my students at Yale and Columbia that really grew out of what they had had to do to become students at Yale or Columbia. And I think you all know, everybody knows at this point what you have to do. You have to become an organization kid. You have to become a hoop jumper, not from ninth grade or probably even seventh grade, but maybe fifth grade or third grade or first grade, Yeah, I mean, you know this. I mean, probably some of you did this. Many of you had children who have done it or are doing it. It's an endless succession of hoops that you have to jump through, boxes that you have to check, literally day after day after day with literally no time to breathe. And what I saw that producing in my students was credentialism rather than intellectualism, careerism rather than a real sense of purpose, I also saw a tremendous sense of self-importance because they had been told their whole lives that they were, quote-unquote, the best and the brightest. And correspondingly, an inability not only to communicate with, but even more importantly, to value people who weren't like them. People who were, I guess, not so good or not so bright. At least that's what the system was telling them about those other people whom they didn't really know anyway. It was a pretty... I would even say angry essay, and it was kind of angry at uh, young people, and it ended up coming out in a small literary quarterly in the American Scholar, whose readership often soars into the high four figures. <laughs> so I thought, you know, no one's gonna see this, and you know, whatever, I, I, had, I said my piece and you know, that's the end of it. I didn't realize in 2008, although I probably should have, that by that point, things don't get published in the American Scholar anymore. Everything is published in one place. Everything is published on the internet. And uh, on literally the third day after the piece posted, it started to go viral. And within a few years, it had gotten well over a million uh, readers. But it was an interesting million, uh, because it wasn't... You know, uh, a cute little monkey getting its hair combed, which I saw just the other day. It was really quite fabulous, and then it, you know, brushed its teeth. It was really, I loved it, and and it probably got a million views. But it got a million views, you know, in two days, and then everyone forgot about it, and they were on to, you know, the cat playing with the fox or whatever. There was an initial burst, but then the piece. Every time I thought it was just going to disappear, it kept uh, the numbers kept going up again, and it was being read month after month after month, and eventually year after year after year. Um, And I'm I'm pretty sure who was reading it, because on day four, I started to get emails from those people, from some of them, and 90% of them were students at selective colleges and universities, or very recent graduates of selective colleges and universities. And 90% of those said, thank you for putting my experience into words in a way that I've never been able to. Or, thank you for saying out loud what me and my best friend say in the privacy of our dorm rooms at Northwestern or Cornell or Pomona or whatever. So what I discovered, really to my surprise, especially because it was a really pretty sour essay, was that this was not just my opinion, that this really struck a chord with exactly the kind of students I was talking about. And let's say on day five, they started to invite me to come talk to their, uh, talk on their campuses. A lot of student groups and sometimes professors who were uh, the rare professor that's especially tuned in to what's going on with their students. So that very fall, uh, I started what became a long series of talks at these kinds of schools, Harvard, Stanford, uh, Claremont McKenna. Um, however big the room was, it was never big enough. (laughs) However long the event was scheduled to go on for, it never went on long enough. Not because I'm a particularly dynamic speaker or because my ideas were particularly brilliant, really, but because I was raising questions that students were desperate to talk about and had never been given a chance to talk about, which was, to put it in a nutshell, what is my education supposed to be for, other than jumping through another hoop. One of the events I did at Stanford, there was a young woman, actually from Singapore, who said, who asked, what are the hidden incentives around us that are shaping the way we dream? And This was such a beautiful question that it practically brought the event to a standstill, but it expressed what what so many students had expressed, which was that they were living out values that they didn't choose, didn't identify with, but couldn't figure out how to get away from. They were trapped in a system, as I put it in the book, that forces them to choose between learning and success. I think if I had a chance to do it again, I would rewrite that phrase and say that it forces them to choose between fulfillment and success. And the question I would get most often at these talks was some version of, Now what? What are we supposed to do about it? What am I supposed to do about it? It, It's a book that really was written in in, that that really came to me from my audience and was written in dialogue with that audience. And so half of the book, first of all, I made it very clear that all my critiques of these kids are really a critique of the adults who who force them to go through a system and become the people they become. Uh, And then the other half of the book is a positive idea of what college is supposed to be for. And it's not revolutionary, it doesn't involve computers, it doesn't involve technology, except the very, very ancient technology of small classrooms with uh, professors who are treated uh, with respect, um, in other words, not contingent adjunct employment, who are teaching a liberal arts curriculum that centered on the humanities, that gives student, students a chance to think about what we used to call the big questions, the questions of meaning and purpose, by uh, reading works in which people have done that in the past. That's what the humanities are. They are the place where people ask the questions about what it means to be human. Literature, philosophy, history, religious studies. So the book came out last year, uh, preceded by an excerpt of the New Republic that was packaged in it in a very incendiary way. The, the title they gave it was, Don't Send Your Kid to the Ivy League. And there was a literally incendiary image. It was a picture of the Harvard flag in flames. <laughs> I don't know if they Photoshopped it or they actually went. And... <laughs> um, and the response was quite vigorous, to say the least. And it was both positive and negative. And people said lots of different things, both in public and private. But to me, one of the most important and most dismaying things was that so many people associated with the institutions that I was critiquing said, "Not, "This guy says we're not giving kids a real education, but we really are, but rather, this guy says we're giving kids a real, edu- we're not giving kids a real education. What the hell is that anyway?" You know, what is this guy a hippie?" <laughs> Stephen Pinker, probably the most prominent of those responses, said... I, I, Steven Pinker, may be emblematic of everything that's wrong with elite education, but I don't know what it means to help students build a self, which is a language I use, or build a soul, which is language I also use. And, when, and whenever I've sat in on uh, job interviews, we've never asked ourselves whether the candidate in front of us will be able to help students do that. And I thought he's right. He is emblematic of everything that's wrong with elite education. <laughs> <laughs> because he doesn't even understand what's missing. So David Brooks wrote a column... Where he he synthesized what I was saying and what Pinker was saying in a way that I that was more efficient than I'd been able to do myself, and I've been quoting him ever since. He said, "Look, there are three purposes to a college education. There's getting a job slash career, uh, which he called the commercial purpose, rather piquantly I thought you could call it the vocational purpose. There's the cognitive purpose, which is about learning stuff or le- learning how to think, which Pinker." which is what Pinker wants it to be about and which I think everybody wants it to be about. And then there's the moral purpose, which is not a word that that comes naturally to me, but it's a word that I'm willing to accept as long as we understand that it doesn't mean telling students right from wrong. It means helping them make autonomous choices. In other words, helping them become adults. The last thing I want to say is that I've continued to learn a lot from the responses uh, in the last year I also spent a semester teaching at Scripps College. I hadn't been in the classroom since 2008. I hear from people all the time. I hear from professors and parents and people around the world. And if I could summarize the main thrust of the response, I would say, I wrote a book about elite higher education in America. And what I've been told is, it's not just elite higher education. It's not just higher education. And it's not just America. It's everywhere. This is a problem that's everywhere, where it isn't just the moral purpose that's been forgotten, but even the cognitive purpose is no longer valued except insofar as it contributes to the vocational or commercial purpose. I don't want to talk for too long initially, you can ask me questions about this, but suffice it to say that the attack on the humanities is not an attack on the humanities, it's an attack on the liberal arts understood in their proper sense as also including the sciences and social sciences. People are not studying physics and math anymore. If you tell someone that you're studying poli-sci or sociology, they give you the same kind of snarky shit that they give you if you study French or philosophy. The best example, my understanding of this is that what we have is education in the age of neoliberalism. If neoliberalism is an ideology that says that you are valuable as a human being, exclusively in terms of your activity in the market, as a producer and consumer, then neoliberal education says the only purpose of education is to prepare you to become a producer. The most obvious example domestically is Scott Walker's attempt to rewrite the mission statement of the University of Wisconsin, one of the great public systems, to eliminate language about serving the public good, or searching for truth, and replace it by the exclusive purposes to serve the state's workforce needs. He literally tried to do that, and there was such an outcry that he pretended that he hadn't. But I just learned, five days ago, the Prime Minister of Japan, literally, I still can't believe this, if I hadn't read it in the Japan Times, I still wouldn't believe it, wants to eliminate all humanities departments from Japanese universities. Yes. So that, this is the biggest picture, of what I started to see in my classrooms and in my office talking to students at Yale. And uh, David, please come and join me.
2: Uh, So of course I'm interested in uh, in the moral piece. So could you give me an example of a successful act of moral education? Either something in your own life or something you've done in the classroom, a book you read, Or a book you taught, or a course you taught, or a course you are aware of that just shows us what it looks like?
1: I'm I'm partly I'm partly gonna dodge that question, but I will answer it. I'll answer it by saying that it doesn't really work like that. I mean sometimes it does. Sometimes you can make a one-to-one connection between something you learned in the classroom and somehow it helped some way that it helped you. but it's much more holistic than that. I remember talking to one of the former students that I'm closest with, who's had a very interesting postgraduate life, and I asked her, I sort of asked her that question. and She started to talk about having read Waiting for the Barbarians in a different class and, 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 and how profoundly it affected her. And I said, so so give me an example. And she started to, and then she stopped herself and said, but it's not like I am now in a situation, you know, that's a pretty extreme situation in that book. She doesn't really find herself in a situation like that. But it's just, it, it's, it's a kind of compost, it's a kind of mulch that helps you think, that helps you become self-aware and self-reflective by uh, studying the moral choices that other people have made. I mean look, I also wrote a book, the last book was called The Jane Austen Education where you know, it's a whole book about how Jane Austen helped me grow up. Right. But it, even when I was writing that I felt like it doesn't really work like that or it's, 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 more, it's, it's more complicated than that.
2: Okay. Now I, I've taught your stuff uh, many times at Yale. And I find there's a, a vocal minority that hates the essays and then a quiet, silent majority that agrees with them. Now, what's the, what's the best comeback students have offered you on your diagnosis of their souls?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, the, the best is the simplest and the most irrefutable, which is you're not describing me. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like I'm getting a great education. I feel like I'm not a sheep. I sometimes they'll even say, I don't know anyone else who is. Um, I will say that um, at one of my Stanford events, I've been there a few times, uh, early in the Q&A, a freshman got up and said, uh, and this was like October, so a f- few weeks into his college career, I'm not a sheep. And, and, of course, I can't say you are, because I don't know you. And then a few minutes later, another freshman got up and said, I'm not a sheep. And then a few minutes later, a senior got up and said, I am a sheep. <laughs> because he had been there long enough to understand what what, what the system, you know.
2: Yeah, okay. Now I'm going to read you, especially given this audience, I'm going to read you my favorite passage of the book, and as a teacher at Yale, the one that resonated most uh, closely. Actually, before I do that, I did have a moment of moral education one of the classes I taught where one of my students at the... At the end of the term, said, "You know, after taking this class, I'm so much sadder than I used to be." Which was like, uh, that was a big win for me. Um, um, okay, so I'm going to read a passage of your book. Uh, this is about parents, and it's he's, uh, Bill is talking to kids. Uh, what do you owe your parents? Love, and when they need it later, care, but not submission, not your life. What do you owe your parents? Nothing. The family is not a business deal. You don't owe your parents. You have a relationship with them. When you are still a child, that relationship ought to involve an obedience. Once you're an adult, it has to involve independence. Now, that resonated with me because I um, see my students burdened by this epidemic of conditional love where their parents have honed them. And if they decide not to take the job they want or the major they want, the love is withdrawn. And those kids live in a state of fear that the most elemental relationship of their life is fragile and depending on their kissing up to their parents and their inner criteria is dissolved and it's horrific. And so that, this section on parenthood, if you don't read anything else and you want to be a good parent or grandparent, this section is, alone is worth the price of that book.
1: Thanks. Th- thank you. Thank you for saying that. And I think you speak about this in your new book also, right? And there's a great book that just got published called, How to Raise an Adult, by a former uh, freshman dean at Stanford, Julie Lithgott-Hames, where she, she talks about this. Um, one of, the, one of the, the most profound things that I learned after writing the essay, from the response, that I hadn't seen at all, was how incredibly unhappy these kids are. Um, kids who I thought, former students who I thought I knew really well, um, and who seemed like kind of well-adjusted kids, later told me how miserable they had been in college. And I mean, I can't add to what you've already said, it's, I mean, that, that's the root of it. Is, and, and that's what parents really need to know. They think they're doing the right thing by their kids, and I understand why they're, why they're doing what they're doing. The, the world is incentivizing them to do that. But um, they're often the last to know. They're often the last to know. How unhappy their kids are.
2: Mm-hmm. Now you begin the book by talking about the hidden sadness, like the lives of quiet desperation of, their, of your students. That they, well, they're sort of like ducks, is the metaphor. On the top of the water, they seem calm, but down beneath, they're scrambling. Uh, and also down beneath, they're psychologically um, much more in turmoil than we imagine. How did that come across to you? Are there vivid examples of that, or you know, typical examples of right. that?
1: Right. Well, again, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even know it until afterwards. This, uh, the students I was just talking about, one of them said, if I, if I weren't on Zoloft, I would hate myself. Another said, I was stressed out and miserable the whole time I was in college. There was a graduate instructor at Princeton who wrote to me and said that a student just burst into tears in her office because of the pressure. But I also discovered that people have written about this, less in terms of college, but more in terms of high school. Right, Madeline Levine, The Price of Privilege. I mean, this is well-documented. In many ways, affluent, high-achieving kids are the most unhappy kids. Mm-hmm. And she tells, she cites statistics and tells all kinds of really awful stories because she sees them in her clinical practice.
2: So you're made president of Yale tomorrow. Uh, what do you do? What are the two or three things you do to make the place better?
1: Right. Um, I want, if, I, if I can place this in a historical context, which, I, as you know, I do at the end of the book, we've really been here before. The meri- we're talking about the meritocracy, and the meritocracy is the result of... Um, A crisis in the previous system, which was the WASP aristocracy, where basically if you went to Groton, you got to go to Harvard, and if you didn't, you didn't. And 1929 happened, and people realized, some very forward-looking WASP aristocrats, including the president of Harvard, that things had to change. And we eventually evolved from the aristocracy to the meritocracy, although it wasn't a complete evolution. Um, We did it by changing admissions criteria. We did it by changing admissions criteria. So that's what I would start with. Uh, at the very least, limit the number of extracurriculars kids can list on their resumes to, like, three. <laughs> that would be a good start. Um, I think there are other things that we could do. Um, frankly, I'm not, I mean, I like to say that my business is complaining, not answers, which I stole from someone else. But but the other thing, uh, and we might disagree on this, the other thing that, that we, as a society did that I think was even more significant was that we um, expanded public higher education. Uh, we built great I mean, the systems existed, but we expanded them tremendously, we built great systems, California, Wisconsin, all across the country. and they were uh, in some cases free, and in all cases at least low cost. And around about the early 1970s, we started to decide that we didn't want to pay for it anymore. So to me the ultimate root of this problem that also gets to larger issues like student debt and access is that we've defunded public higher ed. And so we're driving everyone to these very few uh, private, prestigious private universities. And everyone's trying to get into the same four schools.
2: Yeah. So I, I think I might be a, more intrusive as to how I ran my campus. Uh, you know, I was just at St. John's College in uh, Santa Fe just a few days ago. And there, they have no choice. And they have no majors. You're going to read the great books for four years. And if you want to go there, you're going to accept our version of who you should be and what you should be reading and how you should be educated. There are certain schools around the country that just leave a distinct mark. Uh, Kenyon College, Mount Holyoke College, uh, Wheaton College. They just leave a mark because they have a specific view of what, how a moral person is formed. And if you don't like it, you can go somewhere else. And a lot of the universities that we ta- teach at or taught at were founded, frankly, with a religious purpose. And when the religious purpose was taken away, nothing was replaced it. And so it became so utilitarian as you described it. So shouldn't there be some moral theory behind each school?
1: Uh, Yes. Yes. I'm, you know, it's funny that, I I mean, it's probably funny to you that I'm hesitating. I just want to say, I don't think it went from religious purpose to no purpose. I think there was this great age of secular humanism and great books and education for citizenship. And then maybe 60s, 70s, various things happened. My only, I, 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 don't, I hesitate because I don't think there should be uh, just one model. Because I don't think there's just one kind of student. And requirements can sometimes be counterproductive. It's really hard. I, what I've come out with from my experience in higher ed is that the most important thing is that whatever you do, the faculty ha- ha- have a reason to buy into it. Right, I mean, every 10 years Harvard reforms its general ed requirements, so does Stanford. It works for about a year and then it falls apart. Because professors are not incentivized to care, and the classes are kind of crappy and they're kind of catch-as-catch-can. So whatever, yes, I like more rigor, more prescription. That isn't gonna work everywhere. The important thing is that the teaching and that aspect of a professor's mission.
2: I'm I'm gonna ask you to describe another thing that is in this book. This is a talk you gave about solitude. And I'm asking you to describe the thesis of that talk because I want to get you off agnosticism. I want you to get you off the idea that everybody gets to pick their own way of being a good person because you actually do have a view.
1: <laughs> well, um, I'm not sure what you mean, but um, again, listen, no, no. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think get that I, all the time. That's I mean, <laughs> um, here's the thing, and 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 I struggled with with this in the book too. Um, I try even not to have my own political, when I'm talking about choices students might make in their lives, I try not to make them all leftist choices because the whole point is that they get to make their own choice and that we equip them to do that. So if you mean that in that solitude lecture that I gave at West Point, I say you need to build solitude into your life so you can become a reflective, introspective person, I mean it's really continuous with the stuff in the book, then I agree that I'm not agnostic in that sense. But again, it's still about Building a self so that you can decide. I'm not going to tell you, listen, I mean, I gave the talk at West Point. I questioned their choice from the beginning. I mean, yeah, we need to have an army, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, like, these are not, that's not my kind of values. But I respect them enough. By the way, the thing I hate about the liberal arts colleges to the extent that it's true there is that often they are morally very prescriptive in a politically correct kind of way.
2: So how did it happen with you?
1: Oh, my God. Um... A lot of this book grows out of the fact that it happened very badly with me. My dad was an immigrant. My dad was a scientist. I was supposed to be a doctor. I never had the chance to think about why I wanted to go to college. Um, I majored in science. That's a very perfectly acceptable thing to major in, but it was a mistake for me. And by the time I realized that it was a mistake, it was too late. Because I was always supposed to be a doctor, but I wasn't going to be a doctor, I had no clue about what to do afterwards. I almost went to law school. I did go to journalism school. I floundered around for a couple of years and I finally had a come to Jesus moment, which is strange for a Jewish boy,
2: <laughs> but that I said- "Have to at least 12 people before.
1: <laughs> <laughs> bravo, bravo. Uh, um, well, and may, and, and in many ways, maybe it was the same, because um, <laughs> because uh, I, I, I knew halfway through college that I should have been an English major, and I decided, God damn it, I'm going to study English, whether it's... I'm not going to let it be too late. I'm going to apply to graduate school. I was lucky to get into one program. Uh, and, and then, you know, uh, because I finally asked myself, you know, what, I, I can't, what could I not live without, and what do I care about the most? And it was reading literature which, to bring it back to Jesus and secular humanism, to me is this, I mean, I, I used to be a, a, I grew up religious and I used to be really anti-religious. And now I realize it's not about religion or not religion. It's about whether you use your, your religion or your secularism to be an open person who, who thinks about these things or to be a rigid person who thinks they know they have the answers in advance.
2: Uh, how far, now you quote Alan Bloom in the book, I'll open this and we'll open it for the question. Um, and Alan Bloom had a saying that the purpose of an open mind is to close on something. Uh, and, and do you feel that you've closed on a political or a, a personal philosophy that has a founding father or mother or a name?
1: Um, um, so I'm an English person, not a poli-sci philosophy yeah. person. So I tend to be much more well, wishy-washy about these things. Well, you things. can go
2: with Jane Austen if you want.
1: Well. Um, You know that 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 uh, I don't think of it in those terms, but if I guess if I had to pick one, maybe secular humanism. I think I once called myself a Burkean socialist. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Can I just say though? I mean, I found myself quoting Bloom, quoting you, quoting Saul Bellow, quoting various other conservatives, and it killed me. (laughs) <laughs> but what really killed me about it was that I feel like, why was I doing that? Because you guys still think about these things, and sort of center democratic uh, progressives don't think about culture at all, and the left thinks about it in terms of identity politics, which in many ways is, is, is antithetical to what I'm talking about in education should be. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a huge piece missing from, from the American left now.
2: Okay. I'm going to open the floor. I just want to explain why I've been pressing in this direction. So the the course I teach, the kids come in with this exactly. They are excellent sheep. uh, Wonderful kids, but excellent sheep. And they come in without a moral vocabulary, with any sense of moral traditions. And they've been told over their lives, come up with your own values. And my view is, if you're Nietzsche, you know, maybe you can come up with your own values. But most of us, we can't. And so all I say, I'm going to give you a course. You're the you you should be the grateful beneficiary of a series of moral traditions. There's a Greek tradition. uh, There's Achilles and Homer, glory, honor, courage. There's Jewish tradition, obedience to law, and the Talmudic tradition, the Christian tradition, grace, redemption, scientific tradition, use of reason. And we go through really 14. And I say, I don't care which one you pick, but pick one. See what fits, see what tries on. But I urge them to close around something with a name, with founding fathers, with a tradition. And I do think it's important for them to at least think about closing in on a philosophy that has a name and a stream through history. And so I'm rebelling against your, uh, just be open.
1: Liz, I, I, I realize that my, my answers were terribly disappointing.
2: No, 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 not just no. to you, but to,
1: but to the part of me that's looking at myself. Um, it's, not that I don't, it's not that I don't think you should close on something. And it's certainly not that I think you should invent your own values, because I agree with you there. You, you're not going to be able to do that. Whether you need to pick one specific tradition to locate yourself within, um, I'm not as open as I was when I was 22. I'm, I'm hardly open at all anymore um, in terms of am I going to change my fundamental philosophy. But I do think it's a little undefined and a little eclectic, and I don't think that that in itself is a problem.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. Being a Berkeleyan socialist makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, let's open the floor. Okay, so I was an English major at Yale, and now I'm a doctor, so uh, the the opposite, I think. Um, But here's my question. Uh, By far, uh, most philanthropy in this country goes to education, something like 27%. And, um, you know, this is how colleges make money. And I've read that at Princeton, 40% of the undergraduates are legacy kids. And I wonder if that, like so many other things in our culture... Uh, is influencing education, kind of a, you know, the people who give money are the people who've made money, the people who are successful in the commercial world. Is that an issue for this topic? Thanks. It,
1: it's an enormous issue. I, I will say that that number is, is very, very, it's not 40%, it's maybe more like 15%. I still think, I think it should be 0%, but, or, or at least there should be no legacy advantage, but the, the issue of legacies is actually much broader. There are many, many ways in which elite private colleges A, select for affluent students because they need enough people to pay full tuition, and B, do things or or don't do things to ensure that they have a lot of affluent alumni. Because they have to. And this to me is ultimately why I would like to see the solution lie in public higher education and not, not dismantle the Ivy Leagues, but make them much less important than they are now.
2: Is there anybody else from Yale who has a question? (laughs) I think. (laughs) Okay, we'll accept others, Harvard, Princeton.
0: (laughs) So I'm I'm a partial sheep. (laughs) I'm born and bred here, went to boarding school, Southern College, prestigious Southern College, and I saw the light, fortunately, my sophomore year when I was ready to drop out and didn't know what to do with myself. Um, But what would be the one-liner or the thought you would give to parents or to caregivers or to people to try to keep them from making excellent sheep?
1: I would say don't panic. I think so much of this is driven not just by fear, but by irrational fear. And among other things, I would tell them that for most students, not poor students and not students of color, but for your typical middle class white kid, there's a really great study that shows that your future earnings don't, ma- don't depend on where you go to college because it's really about you.
3: What's behind the change in your column and in your writing? and? Uh, with an emphasis on goodness,
2: I guess. Okay, well, I'll tie it into uh, the subject. Uh, uh, I guess I was a, a really successful excellent sheep, uh, And so, you know, you get more career success than you imagine. Uh, and I happen to be fortunate enough to go to the University of Chicago where we learned the great books. And those two years uh, utterly changed my life. I read a guy named Edmund Burke uh, and hated that book at first, which is why I do believe in requirements because I would not have read Edmund Burke if I had any choice in the matter. And then I went out and covered poverty. And Edmund Burke is a guy who, whose philosophy is based on the concept of epistemological modesty, that the world's really complicated and the power of reason is weak, and therefore you should rely on custom and tradition. And That's really not what a 19-year-old wants to read. Uh, and then you go out in the world, and I covered crime in the south side of Chicago, and I saw the effects of really bad social planning by people who didn't understand what they were doing. And suddenly, the phrase epistemological modesty rang true to me. And it was the effect of being forced to read things I didn't want to read. And it was also the effect, I went to the University of Chicago. My favorite saying about Chicago is it's a Baptist school where atheist professors teach Jewish students, St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, 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 But I went at a time when there were still refugees from Europe from World War II, and they came uh, and they came believing they had, the, the books they were offering were the golden keys to life. They had a total faith in those keys in teaching Hegel and the, the Gospels and Aristotle. And they believed that life, that the authors of these books had devoted their lives to them and we should treat them with honor and respect and with humility because they were so much smarter than we'd ever be. And that's like a little time bomb that is in your head. And then as you get older, it goes off and so personally, it's affected how I write and the things that you know, Bill and I both write about.
4: Hi. Um, I haven't read your book, but I did a couple years ago uh, read your essay, or I guess it was the speech that you gave at West Point about solitude and leadership. Um, and it had an impact on me. I, I served in the Marine Corps previously. And I wonder just some of the things that you're mentioning. In today's context, um, I think it's difficult to get solitude for your views, because how views are shaped now is very driven by social media. Um, <coughs> And so there's a tendency to sort of bucket or um, make heroes, victims, um, and I'm wondering how that interacts with how sort of you see views being formed today and, and the challenges that you see in education. Yeah, um, I, I think
1: we, we live in a time where we've come almost to take it for granted that we're all, you know, these tremendous individualists who all automatically think for ourselves. and. I don't think that's, that should ever be taken for granted because I don't think it's ever true. We, you know, we're, we're socialized, we're brought up to believe certain things without even realizing it. But especially now, social media has many good and ill effects. We did not talk about that, but it tends to reinforce a kind of groupthink. Um, it tends to kind of externalize the conversation you're having. I, I'm not advocating solitude uh, exclusively, right? Conversation one-on-one in a groups are, are those are all important. But um, I think uh, think it's a different kind of conversation when you have it with yourself, and there are no social pressures, and you're not trying to impress anyone, and you can maybe drop a mask that you're even wearing for yourself, right? Um, And yes, it's it's incredibly hard. I mean, it's incredibly hard even for me. We're, We're all plugged into this stuff all the time. But it is also a choice that we can make. And I think as we start to adjust to this new world of social media, maybe people are beginning to to become more reflective and, and, and more um, active about managing their, their screen time. Did, did I answer your question?
2: Yeah. Okay. Do, you, do you believe in keeping a personal journal or a diary?
1: You know, it's funny. It's the kind of thing that I advocate for other people but never really <laughs> did for myself. <laughs> um, I will say, though, you know, when I was young, you know what it really was? It was letters. I mean, my journal was letters that I wrote. L- those long letters that we used to write on, you know, yeah. Uh, again, uh, it's, not, it's not one size fits all, right?
3: Hi, <clears throat> my name is Richard Steinberg and uh, sadly to start, I may sound like the poster parent for what you're talking about. I have a son that went to Princeton and a daughter that went to Cornell and then he went on to Columbia Business School and he tells his children, my grandchildren every day that he doesn't want them going to college. Um, <laughs> it's his life, it's his children, it's his choice. And he asked me what I think about it and um, I tell him the truth. but. My question
5: is...
2: (laughs) How how old are your
3: grandkids? Seven. (laughs) Seven and six and four. He tells them they don't... Give them ten years. (laughs) But the question is, don't you think... I'm trying to understand what you're saying, and it just seems to me that it's a symptom of a disease, because the same parent-child relationship about the guilt of of having to do what the parents say about college would probably be the same uh, guilt that they would feel when they want to pick their spouse or if they want to decide to be gay, not decide, but want to, uh, you know, come out as gay. So it it just seems to me that it's the core core issue is the relationship that the child has with the parent, not that they're placing guilt on him going to college. And, I mean, is that making sense to you?
1: Uh, It makes sense in the in the sense that there are many things that par- many ways in which parents try to tell their kids how to live. And undoubtedly, this is ever since we've had parents and children, parents have been doing this. Um, the difference is that because of the college admissions process that, that we've created, um, the stakes are higher. I mean, the, psychological, the, stakes, the, the practical stakes that parents perceive are much higher. Like if my kid doesn't go to an Ivy League school, they will sleep under a bridge, which is ridiculous. And the psychological stakes on the kid are also much higher, because now it's not, I mean, we've been going through this for 50 years, and it wasn't that bad when I was in high school in the late 70s, but now, demanding this of your kids means giving them a childhood and an adolescence that's really, really damaging. I mean, it really is. Um, so that's, that's my answer. Why does, your, why does your son not want to send his kids to college?
3: Well, he, um, he went through five or six jobs you know, I, he kept saying, do you mind if I switch? I said no. And then he founded a, actually a social media platform. Um, he was one of the founders of a company called BuzzFeed. Yes. And he just decided that, you know, he would have been where he was without all this college. His, uh, <clears throat> his master's in business didn't help him. It was really practical experience in life, you know, going from job to job, knowing what he didn't like, what he did like, I guess. So he doesn't think that the kids need to go to college.
1: So he's taking his particular experience and, and turning it into it's like Kantian, right? He's turning it into the universal rule of all children, especially my own. Right. And this is, I mean, this is the this is the parents. It's the ideal what I should have done. Now you must do.
3: Well, I used I to mean, be a doctor like the and I went mistake. into another profession. So I guess he's he's saying what I did, and then what he did, you know. But uh, he doesn't want him
2: going to college. Over there, ma'am.
6: Yes, I'm Ruth O'Waities from San Francisco, and I think I have a good follow-on to this gentleman. In San Francisco, the conversation is about why college at all. As I'm sure you know, um, a couple of very wealthy individuals are paying young people $100,000 not to go to college and to start businesses. Well, that might work for a while, and it might work for some but a lot of us are very, who are involved in education in various ways, uh, and by the way, um, I served for many years on the board of trustees of Scripps College, where you said you were. How do you react to that, this financial incentive not to go to college?
1: First of all, I think it's incredibly disingenuous. Peter Thiel, who you're talking about, uh, was a philosophy major at Stanford and, I, and, then, and then got a law degree, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And he also says, I mean, he's on, on film having said this, what about everybody else? I don't have an answer for that. He's also a really strong anti-government libertarian. So there's a hidden political agenda here. Um, people have seized on you know, Zuckerberg, whoever, we don't need to send kids to college. It's ridiculous. It may work for a few people. It doesn't mean that we should dismantle college for everybody. That's what I have to say about it.
7: My name is Ginny Galisa now. And this winter, Michael Bloomberg was here. And while he did not say he was against college, he definitely spoke uh, as a proponent for trade schools. And here, like in our valley, in Aspen in particular, we have a wonderful community college that's actually for the entire uh, stretch, for all the resorts between here up to Breckenridge. And they provide even four and five year uh, scholarship, I mean, bachelor degrees that you can get as well as AA degrees. And I know that the college, when they build their programs, it's really built around the needs of the community. Yet I know up also in Aspen, people continue to send their kids to the Ivy League schools or somewhere else. And I. I'm thinking about the gentleman over here who talked about the importance of raising funds for the college, and as you said, the elite colleges really try to bring in um, uh, affluent students to enhance that capability. And so my question is, is how do you build up the image of community colleges so that they really see the benefit of going to their community college right here without having to go somewhere else? And how do you do it in a place like Aspen, where we obviously have an affluent community, yet the students are going somewhere else, so that they can see the benefit of supporting their own community college, and not see it as the community college, as opposed to the community's college?
1: Um, I'm probably gonna give you an answer that you won't be terribly happy with. I don't think there's anything wrong with the smartest, most ambitious kids from your area going off to college somewhere. Um, I, I, I think they should have the option of going to a great, free University of Colorado and not feel that they have to go to Harvard or Yale. I think it's perfectly fine that we have a tiered system where some kids are going to go to trade school and some kids are going to go to community college and maybe stop there, and some kids will you know, get law degrees eventually. I think that's fine. Uh, the University of California, the great architecture that they put in place in the 50s, that's what that's about. What I do object to is that those destinies are often chosen at a very early in a child's age, based on the socioeconomic circumstances in which they grow up. They're not really choices at all. You're basically going to the best place that you have a chance to go to. And sometimes that means Harvard, and sometimes that means community college, and sometimes that means nothing. Sometimes that means you go to such a lousy high school that you don't even finish high school. That's the issue for me. So. Sorry. Also, we don't fund com- and and on top of which, listen. On top of which, the higher you know, the lower down you go in the system, the worse the public funding is. So one one problem with our community colleges is that they're terribly under resourced, and so are our public
2: universities. Sorry. Okay. We're going over here and then over there.
3: Yeah. Hi. Uh, so I
2: also served on the uh, board of trustees of a major university, and I have two kids who are both at elite colleges. One just graduated and have had the same snarky comments about being liberal arts majors in universities where they really are being pushed toward being, I think, vocational schools. And I say this as somebody in business, former lawyer and now in business, hiring kids out of school. And it just feels like we're part of the problem, the boards of trustees, the presidents of these universities where the fundraising is the story and where we're funding them to perpetuate what really is becoming, what is it, 25% of all College majors now are business students I mean it's really nutty that the, the idea of liberal arts education seems gone and how would you what is your prescription for us as trustees, as donors, and as administrators of universities?
1: yeah um, listen we're all all these all the actors in the system are acting from the incentives, the pressures that are being placed on them, and everyone has a relatively small degree of freedom. I actually think the students have more freedom than anyone else, and I understand why boards behave the way they do. Um, Part of it is just courage. One One of my favorite colleges is Reed College, which does lots of things they're not supposed to do, and as a result has a ranking that's like 50 places lower than it could be, because they really are committed to their educational mission. So we want some boards that are really, you know, willing to give up actual material resources for the you know, vision of education they believe in, but also I would say, even in practical terms, and you, know, you try to drill this into students, into parents, they can't hear you. Even in practical terms, the liberal arts are very valuable. That wage gap between liberal arts majors and technical majors almost disappears within 10 years. Our Asian competitors, are trying to put more liberal arts in their curricula because they're trying to figure out what we're doing right, why we're the innovators, and they figured out that it's the liberal arts. Even when we're trying to emulate them, and I think are kind of destroying our, our future, not destroying our future prosperity, but damaging it, weakening it. I would try to make these arguments. Whether they're going to convince anyone is a different
4: question. I'm wondering if you, uh, Duke Rider, Arizona State University worked for the uh, President. I wonder if you thought about a corollary book uh, that addresses the hundreds of thousands if not millions of students who are thinking about should I be at college for completely different reasons, first generation, is it worth it financially and otherwise, and maybe even have circumstances in their background that aren't, they're not confident about why they're suddenly in this place. Both of you said with confidence you believe in state universities, arts is the largest in the country and well on its way to being 100,000 and more. We're trying to serve that audience. Can you imagine what the book is that you're writing for those students who are questioning why they're there and the value of being there?
2: Could you, uh, before you answer, could you, I mean, ASU is a pretty creative place. Could you describe one or two of the creative things that you guys are doing there?
4: Uh, I would tell you one of the measurements of success, meaning staying on at college, is how you feel about freshman mathematics. We think math is hard. Uh, We now partner with a private company, our President uh, 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 Jose Ferrer was speaking this morning from Newton. We are working with technology companies to help teach math in a far more effective way. So our retention rates, our graduation rates are soaring. And these are kids who were often thought of as not being capable of doing this kind of work, and their backgrounds might suggest that. We actually believe every kid is capable of learning. Every student is capable of learning just about anything if given a chance. So we are trying to reach out to those students. And our university now represents the socioeconomic uh, status of the state of Arizona, which is not a very wealthy state, as you know. We believe that is the mission of a university. I don't have
1: a good answer for you because I wrote a book about the world that I understand and the kinds of students I understand. And I wouldn't presume to write that other book. I know that I was talking about 10% at best of American higher education. Uh, in many ways, I would say the same things to them, acknowledging that their ability to pursue those kinds of educational opportunities may be more limited because of the financial pressures on them. But I believe very strongly that they deserve and are capable and would benefit from the same kinds of things. You know, sometimes elite college students say, to kids at Arizona State? even want to study these things? And the first thing I say to them, do you guys want to study these things? Because it doesn't seem like you do anymore. But yeah, I think given the chance they do, to me, the real issue for those students is not those students. It's the fact that we're forcing them to take on a lot of debt. Uh, It's the way we've structured their situation.
4: Yeah, if if I will, it's what happens while they're in that university, not what they were going into it, that makes for a, a great success story, I think, at our universities.
1: I I absolutely agree with you.
6: I'm a college counselor in a public high school right here in this valley. And first of all, we love our community college and the community college system that's here. It's really remarkable. And the president of Colorado Mountain College is among us today, quite an amazing visionary. So we do love our community college here. But I'm asking, what advice would you give to Americans' parents to tell them that college is a fit to be made, not a prize to be won, so that they can brag at, I didn't make that up, Willard Dix said that. Uh, But I feel like this is what the conversation leads to, and that I found out from a NACCAC longitudinal study that, in fact, we college counselors, teachers, we don't get to influence where or if they go parents you have 46% influence of whether they go and where they go. We're really way behind you on that. I think I have a 2% influence. The point is, what would you say to Americans' parents to, first of all, say college is important because they aren't finished when they leave high school. They're not finished human beings. That brain is barely closed. And I, I feel like college is an important place to keep that conversation of development going. But how can we convince them that it's a fit to be made and with 4,500 colleges there's a college for everybody?
1: Right. Let me start by saying I didn't mean to say anything bad about community colleges. I think they play a very, very important role. Listen, 40 percent of college students are enrolled in community colleges. I, 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 um, what would I say to parents? Um, I think one thing I would try to say is to get, ask them to reflect on their own path, and I think that in most cases they would find that their path was a non-linear path, that they made mistakes, that things they ended up doing something professionally that they never could have imagined, that they surprised their parents, disappointed their parents, made their parents afraid and then ultimately made them proud, and that they need to remember what it was like to be young and what young people can do, what they're capable of. And to give their kids the same kind of freedom and the same kind of encouragement rather than the fear and the box and the this is this is all about me rather than all about the kid. Does that does it
2: make sense? Final question.
5: Hi, I'm Laura Lauder from Silicon Valley. And I wonder what you would say about this question of how American higher education compares with the liberal arts educations that we see in South America, in Europe, in Asia. Because what I saw, I have two kids going to college this fall. What I've seen is when I was a junior in college, I went to Spain. And everybody lived at home. There were no clubs after school. You were not living independently. But in American four-year colleges, kids learn to grow up. They learn to be independent. They learn to have friends. They learn to to join clubs and and find find aspects of their college education that is much bigger than themselves. So from my perspective, liberal arts and all of the things that American four-year colleges offer is so much more interesting and much more diverse and creates a whole person, much more so than, frankly, those very vocational educations that, that you see in universities all over the world.
1: I completely agree with you. Um, the, the thing I like about those systems is that college is often free or very low cost. Uh, that can also that can be a trade-off for l- fewer, less access because kids are tracked at a younger age. We, this is the thing. I mean, you know, people talk about the anti-intellectual strain in American history, American culture. There's also very strong countervailing strains that enabled us to build not just great public universities but to have this really unique system where a kid doesn't just study one thing in college, where a kid often goes off to college and there's all this lateral learning that happens. Um, the problem is that I think many aspects, if not all aspects of that system, have been under threat for a long time. And now the idea is that kids are going to sit at home in front of a computer and learn what they need to learn and we're going to be able to do away with college altogether and won't that save us a lot of money? And we may not be uh, uh, dismantling the humanities departments by government fiat, but we're, you know, we're moving in that direction piecemeal. So I, I think our system is an incredibly we've inherited actually what was once an incredibly strong system but it's under increasing threat from every direction.
2: Thank you very much. Bill Dracen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: That was William Derezewicz and David Brooks recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 30th, 2015. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.